Welcome everyone to Coffee and an Interview. I'm Jacqueline Pena and today I'm here with Raju Rajan who is actually walking and talking for this interview. It's quite fascinating. Um, But he's here today to talk about rewilding, a concept that I had never heard about until recently. Raju, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jacqueline. Really appreciate it. So tell us a little bit about yourself and and then we're going to jump right into rewilding because again, it's such a new concept for me, but, uh, and you're walking right now. Tell us a little bit about why you're walking. I think this is fascinating and something I want to try. (laughs) Uh, You know, a little bit, I did this a little bit before the pandemic. So, and I'm so glad I did. Right. During the pandemic, usually, right, I'm a technologist by profession. I work with large corporations on their technology needs, and I fly around the country usually and talk to my clients and tell them what to do or ask them what they want, right? Uh, Whichever way. Um, Ever since the pandemic, I've been stuck at home like everybody else, and it's just amazing. I can't go to the gym. You know, the outside space is my normal exercise, other than gardening. You know, a lot of it got closed down. And I realized that if I sit and talk, like they say, sitting is a new smoking. So sitting all day long and talking, I mean, my energy, I mean, I was that kid in class who just, you know, I'd rather be like kicked out of class than sit for like an hour long lecture. So I'm so good. I, even when I talk on the phone, I walk up and down. So I'm glad I got myself a walking desk, which is why, you know, uh, it, even though it adds a little bit to the background noise, maybe um, it's a full fledged desk. It has my computer on it. Um, I can do everything, you know, all my daily email and web and whatever other activities I want to do. And a large portion of our lives seem to now revolve around talking to each other over Zoom and communicating over the phone and all that. And this is an incredible way of not sitting. So I actually end up with more energy at the end of the day by virtue of just walking slowly throughout the day rather than actually uh, sitting and sitting and talking to people. So um, pardon the noise, but you know what? Uh, I am so glad at the end of the day, you know, you're like on that, uh, sometimes your work feels like a treadmill. And the good news for me is I'm actually on a treadmill, a walking treadmill, but <laughs> so it's right. But at the end of the day, you look down and you see your walk like seven miles or eight miles. And the fact that you were on all those boring calls or like not productive on doing the it it vanishes you're like at least I got seven miles you know (laughs) walked so anyway I highly recommend a lot (laughs) I walk slowly but you know over you know even if you walk two miles an hour or an hour mile and a half an hour or four four hours you'll get to six miles so yeah yeah and so I definitely need to invest in one of those because I am the one who has been sitting all day every day and barely getting up and except to work standing up on an island So uh, I think it's a great conversation because it brings us to our health, our sustainability, taking care of ourselves, which is part of what rewilding is about. And so I'm going to let you tell us a little bit about what is rewilding exactly. Uh, It doesn't mean going wild and, you know, I'm in Miami today, so it doesn't mean going wild in the clubs, drinking, dancing. It's a whole other concept. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us about rewilding and what that actually means. Sure. So I'll tell you what it is not. It is definitely not letting your garden or yard or property just run wild, right? It, it, it is a form of sustainable landscaping. If you let your garden or yard run wild, it's going to overrun with not just native species and things that are good for you. It's going to run overrun with a whole bunch of 
invasive things which we have brought into places by virtue of human activity. So it's actually going to add to the problem, not solve the problem. So just right away, rewilding is not <laughs> you letting your yard go wild. The core of rewilding is the word wild, right? What is the meaning of the word wild? Wild does not mean fierce. It does not mean, you know, when I say wild animal, it does not, it evokes the outdoors, it evokes the wilderness. But what is special about, you know, a butterfly is a wild animal, so to speak, or wild insect. Why is that? Because who controls the genetics of it, right? Who controls the shape, the color, the texture of a butterfly? I don't think anybody does, nature does, right? The butterfly controls it in conjunction with its evolution, in conjunction with its environment and so on and so forth. Whereas if you take a tomato, it's domestic. Why is it domestic? Because we quote unquote tamed it about 30,000 years ago or so, human beings started taking nature more and more into their hands. They took, you know, they created crops, whether you take rice or wheat or lentils or um, eggplant or a potato or tomato or cats or dogs or, you know, goldfish, <laughs> whatever it is we, we put our hands on, we said, oh, you know, this looks great, but it would look even better if this tomato were redder and richer and juicier and could stand straight on a stalk and I could harvest it to the machine, whatever it is. So we started selecting them for specific traits. And so that's what we call domestic Rewilding basically means saying, hey, let's bring back many of those species which were selected by nature or wild, right, non-domesticated species. Let us make sure that many of those native non-domesticated species have a space in our, in our lives, in our suburbs, in our cities, in our wildernesses, and so on. Because what is happening with urbanization, uh, with the fact that we are um, we are landscaping in certain ways, right? And putting concrete everywhere is that all these species are disappearing. So what we are doing with rewilding is basically gardening with wild native plants as much as possible, putting them into our environments. Um, and and, and that plays a big role in sustainable landscaping. Right? So that's, that's it in a nutshell. I hope I was clear about what, what the concept is at least. It is. And, and, and we don't think about how much our food has changed, our plants, our wildlife in our front yards, backyards, communities over time, because we've been bringing in other species of plants or making changes to what our tomatoes look like and our peppers. And, uh, and that's something that we don't think about very much. I'm imagining that uh, native non-domesticated plants and flowers are different depending on the region you live in. Absolutely. And that's exactly right. So that's exactly right. And that's kind of goes to the heart of what we have been doing, right, as human beings, especially like I live in a suburb um, out in Long Island, New York, right? And the first suburb was created in Long Island. The suburb was invented pretty much like every other form of the, every other thing around us. And what is special about the suburb, right? It's a, you have a tract of land on which you put cookie cutter houses, which are set back from the street. So this is what was opposed to the city. If you went to New York City, all these houses are right on the street. And that, was, that used to be the model. But you set the house back from the street and you put a little, what do you do with that little patch of land? You put a green carpet on it, a lawn on it. And then um, you build these houses, which are separated from one another. The suburban model with like, you know, a, a grass lawn in the front and a pool in the back and certain set of plants, 
This has been replicated all over the world, whether you go to Shanghai or Bangalore or um, mm -hmm. New Orleans, or you go to uh, uh, Phoenix, Arizona, right? This model of how people want to live with that little grassy lawn. And then the mixture of plants that people brought over largely from Europe and Asia, which is the, you know, the, the roses, the tulips in the spring, the, <laughs> um, uh, uh, you know, the, the chrysanthemums, the hydrangeas. I mean, like, you know, you can just name a package of plants with some variation, but necessarily largely we've been copying that package with especially that lawn grass out there, right? So, so much so that irrespective of which part of the country we live in, it's starting to look the same from a landscaping perspective, right? So you're absolutely right. Bringing back native plants would just bring back so much diversity into our lives. And it is something that we need to be mindful of where we are. So many of the things I say may be specific, like if, especially the plants I name will be specific to my eco region, which is in Long Island, New York. So definitely do that research and figure out what the what is native to your space. And that might be a desert cactus or a, <laughs> or a tropical plant, depending on where you're listening to this from. But definitely that, that variation is essential um, to native, to rewilding. No. And it's interesting because you mentioned so many uh, popular flowers that we've traditionally had for different occasions here in the U.S. And so I think many of us don't realize that some of these flowers and some of these plants and even how some of our fruits and vegetables, like the types, might not be even native to the U.S. It's, it's a concept that a lot of us haven't even thought about before. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, and the point is, what we are living in is we are living in an era of mass manufacturing. Um, so if I, if I told you about somebody that lived in a town where they ate for McDonald's every day, you'd be like, oh my God, that's horrible. But if I told you that you live in a town where you mass manufacture landscapes, you have the landscape equivalent of McDonald's mm -hmm. everywhere, uh, you would not even blink an eye because I could take a photo of a house in New York and send it to somebody in California and they wouldn't be able to tell where in the world it came from. Um, I mean, take, for example, like tulips, right? Um, a tulip is a plant. It's a wild plant that was, it's, it's wild ancestors lived near Afghanistan, near Turkmenistan. The Ottoman Turks loved the tulip so much, they domesticated it. They used it in a lot of their art. They used it in a lot of gardening. And then the Europeans came to the Ottoman Empire and especially the Dutch were fascinated by this tulip. And it's, it's a tropical plant. It doesn't live in the Netherlands, but they took it back and with their ingenuity, they replicated it, duplicated it and figure, figured out how to mass manufacture the tulip. And um, the point about the tulip is if you let it go to seed and you take the seed and you plant it, you're not going to get anything that resembles the mama or the papa, right? Because it's why it goes wild very quickly, which is why you can only replicate it from the bulb, which means you're essentially cloning it. So they create these armies of clones, right? In uh, like you take some pictures from the Netherlands or the poppy fields, it'll look beautiful, but it's like armies of monocultures and clones. And basically they package it and ship it. 
and everybody buys that homogenized product, puts it in their lawn and it pops right up and it comes out in the spring. And it and I call it a plant Barbie because it is something that's manufactured to look, uh, appeal to your aesthetic. The wild ancestor. So why does the tulip have a flower? The tulip doesn't have a flower because human beings love it. The tulip has a flower because it has specific pollinators that come visit that flower, take the nectar, take the pollen, pollinate the flower and help it make, make seeds. A flower is, you know, a flower means that there is a bee or a moth or a butterfly or an insect somewhere that comes and visits that flower and helps change that flower into a fruit or a seed, right? That can then be dispersed and create more baby plants. So that's nature's way of co-evolving with insects. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really arrangement between plants and insects to help one another. The plant helps the insects make more babies by giving it nectar and pollen, and the insect helps the plant makes more seeds by cross-pollinating it and making sure that several traits are preserved. So that's nature's way. What we have done is we have mass manufactured it, turned it into an army of clone tulip dolls, plant barbies, which we can pop in. And which is why when you look out into your yard in spring, all those poppies, beautiful, uh, I mean, sorry, all of those uh, tulips will be popping out from the ground uh, right away, but there won't be any insect near it, right? I mean, the, the, the insects couldn't care less. It looks beautiful to humans and <laughs> it's, 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 it's an aesthetic that we need to get away from because the, the, the horrifying thing is because we have done these things to our, every time we have put a tulip in, we have displaced a native uh, plant. So in my area, early in the season, you will get irises, iris versicolor. You will get um, golden alexanders. You will get um, uh, some kinds of yarrow. I mean, there are, there are plants that you have now just as you know, pretty plants with pretty flowers that have been displaced because we decided to put a lawn in and and poppies in there and put a yard in there. And now what happens to all the pollinators that really needed those flowers to grow, right? So you, you essentially end up in this crisis and it's horrific, right? I mean, and if I saw a report that in Germany in the last 25 years, they have lost, I don't know, more than 50% of their insects. Right, pollinating insects. We have the bee colony collapse disorder. We have the bee disorder. You know, everybody has heard of these things, but the great thing is the answer to these is right in your front yard and backyard, which is in the choices you make to not landscape, you know, not have the landscaping equivalent of McDonald's, but have the landscaping equivalent of, I don't know, organic food or uh, home cooked food or some diversity in there, which involves healthy choices. And in this case, healthy choices means putting more native plants, more wild native mm -hmm. stock into your yard. So the insects and the bees and the butterflies and the moths and the birds and the entire ecosystem can partake of your yard and not just be some piece of plastic that only humans appreciate, right? You, you just answered a couple of questions because I was going to start by saying, well, I don't get it. Why, why can't we have the pretty manufactured lawn? It's just the lawn. And you made the connection for us uh, what uh, domesticated plants and these manufactured um, yards, front lawns, backyards, um, how that affects the ecosystem and, and, and insects and things like that. So you, you brought it down to that. And then we went into a conversation about the insect population, which is decreasing. And you mentioned bee population. There are, there's a lot of research going on in terms of bees and what it means to have that population decrease over time. Um, and so let's talk a little bit about that other piece. So because we're domesticating our yard so much, our land so much, 
we're affecting our insects, bees and other insects. What does that do long term for us to understand why it's so important to consider rewilding our lawn in some way? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, there is a lot of different reasons, mm -hmm. right? So um, there are human reasons and there are non-human reasons, right? So that's what I, what I would first like to separate, right? There are good reasons to do this because it is good for people. And there are good reasons to do it because it's good for other creatures. And so that's a value system that you have to subscribe to, which is basically saying, hey, the planet is for all the species that you know, grew on it. And for us to decimate species is not a good thing. It's not morally a good thing. And, and just that extent of decimation is apparent. Like when I was a kid, uh, you know, we're talking about this earlier, right? I, I, when I used to drive across the country, the windshield used to be full of insects. And this was back in India, especially after the rains. I went back, you know, just last year and I drove 300 kilometers right after the rains and I didn't have a single insect on my on the windshield of the car that I was being uh, that I was taking, and that was horrifying to me. That was indicative of a genocide. That was indicative of like you know billions and billions and billions of insects just disappearing off the face of the earth. Now, in itself, it's horrifying, but on the other hand, it's also from a human perspective also it is horrifying, right? Because first of all, um, insects are that protein bridge in the ecosystem, right? They basically imbibe plants and plant sugars and things like that, and then they convert it into protein. And birds depend critically and other animals depend critically on that insect layer as a protein food source that feeds the rest. So if you're like worried about, you know, hey, the birds are disappearing, then you should worry about the insects. And if you're worrying the insects are disappearing, you should worry about native plants because that ecosystem and that web of life is so intricately bound. The plants need the insects. There are certain plants that will only be pollinated by certain insects because you know they co-evolved certain structures to be poll to pollinate them. For example, your tomatoes, you know, bumblebees are the most efficient pollinators. We all know that like a lot of uh, bee, po bee pollination of many of our major food crops. So if you look at the human purposes of it, most of our any anytime you want a flower to change into a fruit or a seed you have to see an insect somewhere playing a role, right? So, which means whether everything from your almonds to your apples, to your cherries, to your, you know, everything is pollinated. Some insect visited it and said, hey, you know what, happy. And, you know, it was the tinder or the grinder of the plant world <laughs> and made those connections and made things, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, so that's kind of like the role of, you want to think about it as the dating service of the plant world, right? Of the flowering world and, mm -hmm. and, and, and say that's, the role they play. And so they're definitely critical to our sustenance, right? And, and, and going forward, if we want to reduce the carbon footprint of our food, insects are an amazing source of protein. And, you know, I read this article in the Washington Times, which basically said, oh, we could manufacture our, our um, uh, cat food and pet food out of insect protein. That would really dramatically reduce the carbon footprint of, you know, otherwise you have to grow uh, an acre of uh, food and then grow a few cows on it. And then the cows are inefficient. I mean, it's the question of how do you manufacture protein in an efficient way? Insects do this in an amazingly efficient way. So even as a future 
food source as a way of reducing our carbon footprint, this is an amazing um, thing to do. So we should care a lot about insects. We should care a lot about ecosystems. And then the medicines. I mean, there's like an in, immeasurable source of drugs and future discoveries and chemicals. These things have been evolving for 4 billion years, right? So they have figured out a lot of smart strategies that we are only beginning to scratch the surface off. So for us to have greater diversity means preserving more of those nature secrets that might be the source for human longevity of fighting human diseases, of conquering things. So it's, it's a lot of different things, but fundamentally I would appeal to your moral sense and say, hey, these things were there before us and we want them to be there with us because they are beautiful, pretty and have a right to live just like we do. <laughs> So, so you've convinced me on the importance of this <laughs> and that we should love insects. We shouldn't try to destroy all of them <laughs> um, and, and the role that rewilding plays in preserving the insects and in our, in our ecosystem and trying to balance everything out. So if, if we're on board with, yes, this is important. Yes, we need to rewild. Yes, we need to save our insects, save our environment, balance the ecosystem. How do we do it? Uh, so I guess that's always the next step. Okay, we're on board. So what can I do? It, very good. This is a perfect time of the year to be asking the question, especially in if you live in uh, uh, New York or any one of the north, northern United States uh, uh, regions, because it's a great time to plant natives. So the first thing you want to do is to research what is native to your space. Like what are some popular natives? And, you know, I would start with something that's also pretty. I mean, like at the end of the day, we wanted to serve human purposes and we wanted to serve environmental purposes. So you want it to be aesthetically beautiful. You want to have a good high quality yard, which is at the same time, you know, pesticide free, full of pollinators and at the same, pretty with flowers. So pick something that you like. So in my area, uh, right, uh, it would be the milk weeds, I would start with, you know, uh, either the swamp milkweed or the butterfly weed, which attracts monarch, but monarch butterflies. Coneflowers are beautiful. Uh, Black-eyed Susans are beautiful. So just do some little research. Just go to Google and put in your, uh, go to wildflower.org, for example. That's a great website uh, where you can say which region of the world you are from and, um, uh, or which uh, region of the United States you're from, and it'll tell you what your native plant packages are. So you can pick something that is very easy to grow, pick something that is pollinator friendly, take a small, you don't have to completely destroy your lawn or your backyard or do anything dramatic. You can start with a small patch, start with like a 10 foot by 10 foot, 100 square feet, 50 square feet, decide, right? So if you take 50 square feet, you're pretty much planting about 20 plants or 30 plants in there, right? You can start with 10 plants, start, start with a clump of plants, put them in the ground. These are all native perennials. So what you can expect is they'll spend, they'll take a couple of years coming in, right? They'll spend the first year laying down roots and then the next year they'll start flowering. The point is they'll have deep roots so you don't need to water them as much. They are wildflowers. If you picked your flowers well um, in your native region, these are flowers that were growing wild without any human intervention in terms of herbicide, pesticide, pruning, et cetera. So they'll do very well on by themselves, thank you, right? So there's less water, less pesticide, less pollution. You will automatically, I can guarantee you, they will be buzzing with insects, uh, right? Don't get freaked out if you get a few bees. Most of these are not, I mean, 
I've not found any one of the bees. My yard is buzzing with insects. None of the, all these fat bees are, all they want is like, they want to be sucking on the, you know, nectar and pollen. They'll leave you alone if you leave them alone, right? So, so it's, it's, it's a very beautiful way of bringing wildness to your yard. And I guarantee you, I have not known anybody that did this once not to start like expanding. So warning, it is addictive because once you get, you know, once you get insects, you'll start getting birds. And once you start seeing birds, you'll be like, oh my God, a goldfinch. I've never seen this, or I've never seen this dragonfly before. I've never seen this, you know, so then it gets very exciting. And especially if you have kids and you have butterflies and milkweed, it becomes a great way for them to look at caterpillars and learn about, you know, it just becomes a very powerful way for you to um, interact with your yard in a way that you never knew possible. Um, most people just like, you know, let the lawn service come and mow their lawn and, you know, blow their leaves. This is a way for you to actually go and interact and get the most value out of your property while keeping it pretty, keeping it chemical free, lowering your water bill, <laughs> you know, and, 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 and having a great time doing it. Yeah, and, and it's amazing. So you talked about so many different things now. One thing that really got my attention was the fact that I don't have to have this great green thumb to be able to rewild. It's actually much easier than traditional landscaping for those of us who are not so great in the flower plant world like myself. Um, and then the other piece is that you provided a resource, wildflower.org. And for our listeners, all these resources and the links to the resources are available in the podcast episode description area so that you can copy and paste the link into your browser or click on it depending on the platform you're using to hear this particular episode. And then I love the educational component and, and engaging with your yard. A lot of times, you know, we don't take the time to say, hey, this is what a caterpillar looks like, or this is how ants work. They work like a team, or we don't take that time for that educational component with our lawns, um, or, you know, in general, with, with, with our wildlife or, or our lawns or our yards or our landscaping. And you brought in this educational piece, which I thought was very interesting. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're guaranteed to get an ecosystem very quickly. I mean, like, you know, if you get a plant, if you get a native plant, like any in my area, very soon you'll get like aphids or something on it. And then a ladybug will crawl up and then ants will come. And, you know, you'll just see everything and the butterflies. I mean, I'm, I always have a monarch butterfly in my yard or something. So it's, it's really fun. It's really fun. You also mentioned something that I mean, this is all fun. It's educational. It doesn't require a green thumb. It's actually much easier than traditional landscaping um, and planting, things like that. But you, one word that stuck with me, I'm not sure if you used the word, but I kept thinking patience. Um, you know, when you plant uh, some of your native plants and flowers, you need to be patient and allow them to take root and to really build that strong foundation to stay on your property, to survive. And patience is something that a lot of us don't have. So hopefully listening to this will let us see that it's okay if that doesn't bloom this year. It takes a couple of years. It's it's building, its, it's getting its roots in deep and it's getting stronger. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and that's why they're drought tolerant, right? Your lawn grass typically has like four inch to six inch roots, mm -hmm. right? And, and that's why it dries out very quickly and you have to 
water it that frequently. On the other hand, a plant that is native, mm-hmm. it, it spends its time and it's perennial, it knows it's gonna keep coming back. So it spends a lot of its time putting roots like you know, a foot, two feet, three feet deep. So it really is source uh, tapping into deeper water uh, and then it, it flowers at the same time, right? So let me, you know, it is gardening. So you do have to, you do have, to have patience. You do need to weed because other things will grow. Like no matter what it is, if you till the ground and you plant something, then other things will try to grow in there. And many of those things may not be desirable in the sense of being from your native, the same maybe they may be um, invasive species or non, whatever, non uh, weeds of whatever characteristic, right? So you do have to pull those out and maintain it. The maintenance is much less than a traditional, you know, exotic garden, exotic monocultures, but um, it is definitely, um, you know, something that you will have to stay on top of because it is a form of gardening, right? Yeah. And um, and in this, that front, um, for those of us who have never done this before, uh, I never knew what rewilding was until we met uh, not so long ago. What are some tips or some advice for us to get started? How do we get started and what tips do you have for us in whether we live in the northern end or like New York or the southern end like Florida? So here's what I would say, right? The first step, right? Suppose you live in a town and all you're being used to is eating at McDonald's, Mm -hmm. right? Pretending. What's the first step you need to do? You need to say, oh my God, outside of McDonald's, what do I like, <laughs> right? And, and develop my own taste, right? So that's exactly what it is for you, right? So you have to say, take a look at your yard and say, okay, look, let me first identify everything in my yard how, uh, and how much space do I have, right? And then sort of say, all right, you know, here is a little space that I want to start with. And it might be a sunny spot. It might be a shady spot. It might be a piece of an existing lawn, whatever, right? And then do your research, go to wildflower.org or um, the Audubon, um, North, you know, the North America Audubon has a wonderful resource as well. I'll send the link uh, to put in your description. And those, you could go there and basically research your area and see what kind of plants are available and pick something. And just like, you know, not eating at McDonald's opens up a whole world of like everything from Panera blood bread to cooking your own. Just the same thing with rewilding. It's just gardening with native plants. So you can do a variety of different things. You can do low ground covers. You can have an English garden look. You can do a meadow. You can do uh, native trees. You can do hedges. You can do wild edible plants. I mean, in my part, of the country, blueberries are native, strawberries are native to America, you know, uh, raspberries. So there's a lot of research you can do and figure out what exact combination of purposes. If there's a young kids you're working with, maybe they'd love to pick berries off the off the vine and eat them. So what kind of berries are good for you? Or, or if you pollinate a garden or, you know, so it's really, it, it opens up a world of possibilities. It's not a cookie cutter answer, but you can go again. I'll give you our website. So if you're um, if you're in in the same eco region as Arriva, Long Island, then there's a lot of different ideas. We solicit blog articles by people who do this or have done this in the last four years. So there are before and after photos. You know how people get with their yards and lawns and kitty cats and everything with the photos. So there are lots of photos, lots of ideas, lots of designs. And then you can just start researching and build your own taste, so to speak, and build your own palette and build your own um, yard from ground up, like free of all the 
what the industry is selling to you from a cookie cutter model. That's great advice. And it actually leads to my next question. You took this passion. I mean, you're passionate about this topic and this idea of rewilding for the balancing of our ecosystem. And you took this passion um, to a nonprofit. And you're currently the president of Rewild Long Island. And I would love for you to share what you do, meaning the, the organization, in terms of rewilding and helping others rewild their own uh, spaces great so yeah so we, i started by doing my own backyard mm-hmm. i i hated the fact that i had grass in it i mean not hated but i was like ah what is the point of like you know putting grass in there and then guys got pay somebody to come in put in some fracked chemicals like urea on it mm-hmm. and then they drive around with vehicles that spew like make noise and spew a lot of carbon into the atmosphere and then they just cut the lawn and then throw it away and then I start all over again pumping water and so my water bill and my fertilizer bill and this and that it just didn't seem to make sense to me my wife was a little more skeptical she said hey don't do anything dramatic I still have to live in this neighborhood and face the neighbors (laughs) so so I said, yeah, so let's do it in the backyard, which was a little bit more secluded. And I said, you know, in the worst case, I didn't know what I was getting myself into. So I said, you know what, in the worst case, I can always pay somebody to put the lawn back. And she said, yeah, sure. Okay. So I went and I rototilled it. I got a bunch of seeds from plants that were native to my area. But it, I, I kind of did a meadow style. You don't have to do a meadow. You can always do a more uh, restrained garden. Um, but I was not a person of restraint. So I just, I didn't know what I was doing. I put it, and it was just brilliant. The first year we just got tons of beautiful flowers. Um, we continue to get gorgeous flowers and the mix of flowers has changed from a little bit more annuals to a lot more perennial. So we have like, you know, the cone flowers and the bee balm and the, um, uh, and the, you know, and the uh, black-eyed Susans and the, uh, you know, variety of asters. Right now we have asters and, um, uh, and, and, uh, and uh, uh, golden rods that are in full bloom. And every part of the season, these are buzzing. I had never seen dragonflies in this country. They came out of nowhere. Goldfinches, I saw like a variety of birds. It's just amazing. The amount of um, explosion of insect and bird life in my yard is amazing. And I leave it uncut in winter. So the birds continue to eat the seeds. So even if I don't get color in the yard, the birds continue to provide color. And then, you know, the, 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 the stems start providing, a lot of our bees are ground nesting or they lay their eggs in the stems of the hollowed out of hollows of native plants. That's why they, they're not swarming, right? I mean, the swarming bees are mostly Western honeybee is, uh, is, is from Europe, right? Okay. Here, most of our little bees. So it's just amazing that how you, how once you provide them with like food and lodging how they move in like us humans. <laughs> like like immigrants yeah i don't know what <laughs> just like us right so yeah it's amazing and, and i and i love that and once my wife saw that that she wouldn't hear about me getting rid of it or putting anything she's just like we just adore it and we enjoy it we spend a lot more time in our backyard now because mm-hmm. even just sitting in my backyard looking out there's always something to look at <laughs> it's like there's a butterfly coming in or a monarch butterfly coming in or some other kind of whatever so anyway so 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 I, when I did that, it was, I was like, I felt like this odd eccentric was doing this myself, but I soon discovered, I mean, in my town, we had a meeting of uh, a local group that got formed um, and I started speaking to a few people. And then the seven of us decided that year that we would 
get together and hire a consultant to come and look at our yards and help us do things. So we just started forming first as a community group um, Mm -hmm. that wanted to do this. And then we said, oh my God, we need more plants. And these plants are not sold in Home Depot or Walmart or our local nurseries. So then we said, oh my God, we need to get these plants. How do we get these plants? And then we said, oh, we've got to go to wholesalers, get that and then split it up. Mm -hmm. So it's like one of the early days of organic, the organic movement where people said, oh, you know what? We don't want to eat this industry crap, like all this commercial chemical crap. We want to get food that's not contaminated. But then the Mm -hmm. way they did it was by forming co-ops, going, connecting with farmers, getting like organic farmers, getting the food and then spreading it up themselves. That's kind of, we're still in the early stages of this moment. So that's what we we do as a nonprofit. One of the things like right now, what we are doing is we are doing our fall plant sale. We just finished our fall plant sale and I have to do distribution. But the number of people that are interested in it has grown from seven to 70 to 700. So it's kind of like even in the last two years, we've been exploding in terms of the number of requests and the interest we are getting in terms of people wanting to put these plants in their yard. Mm-hmm. Right? So um, that, and, and so we do one plant sale in the spring, we do one plant sale in the fall. And then in the middle, uh, we use all the money that we raise uh, to good purpose by uh, offering youth scholarships. Um, and what we have our young people do is essentially, right? We have them working in a local farm to make, produce organic food, learn how to grow food, which is then donated to a local food pantry. We uh, teach them how to uh, plant natives, uh, remove invasive uh, plants and vines from our preserve. Uh, We teach them about composting and recycling. We teach them about preserving water. So essentially, a lot of our young people have this whole, um, I mean, they're passionate about the environment. Uh, Unfortunately, they're the generation that grows up with all this climate change and a sense of doom about nature. And and, and I think that what is positive is to turn that into action. Say that, look, it's not just about being online and following Greta, but it is really about putting your hands in the ground and you can do something about it. And it's amazing. Um, so last year was the first year in the pandemic we actually did this uh, with 20 young people and five of those young people agreed to stay on and become organizers this year. And out of this year's 30 young people, we have like about uh, 10 of them that are volunteering to, again, continue and do this next year. So really, we want to make this a thing for the youth, by the youth, because they are our future. So whenever we talk about any of these dramatic changes, you know, I know many of my neighbors who love their lawn, and that's good. And they're never going to change, right? Meaning, you know, that's what they're used to, right? And then they're, they're good with it. And in which case, God bless them. But the new crop of homeowners that are coming in are, you know, increasingly our subsequent generations are more concerned about sustainability. They're concerned about not having as many chemicals. They're concerned about biodiversity. They're concerned about giving back. So really, this is a way for us to really affect change in the next generation is by getting young people to care and show them that there's a way that we can actually do this in our own communities. I love the movement um, because I think that's a very difficult thing for our younger generations or our younger individuals is moving from, from that passion and that concern and the research part of things to action. And you provide them a vehicle 
for action in this concept of rewilding and the balancing of the ecosystem. Exactly. So that's very powerful. Exactly. Right. And, and, a, and a big, and, and sort of like the other side of rewilding is taking out all the invasives that are, you know, <laughs> spreading into our, because as people move, we bring things from other places, mm-hmm. introduce them into ecosystems where they don't have predators and they just grow unchecked and threaten human beings and other living things. So really getting the invasives out of there, putting natives in there and then growing food locally. I think all of these are very important. Very powerful. And and you you gave us, you you taught us a little bit more about rewilding. You gave us tips on how we can get started uh, as well as resources, including your own nonprofit. So those resources will be listed in the description area for this episode with links directly to those resources. Um, and so this is this is powerful work. I, I like I like I said a couple of times already. I just had no idea that this concept existed until we met, and the repercussions of of having domesticated plants rather than native plants, and what's happening now, why we need to rewild so much uh, more now than ever before, probably in the U.S. Absolutely, um, and, we, and we need both. I mean, I'm you know mm-hmm. definitely you're not gonna find me without rice. <laughs> I'm not going to say, oh my God, rice has been domesticated. I'm not going to eat that. Nope. Yeah, I'm going to have my big bowl of rice every evening. So, uh, but uh, it's so important to make space, right? It's kind of like the exclusion. We've taken those domesticated plants, spread them everywhere and kind of really crowded out the natives and the wild. So we need to, it's, mm-hmm. it's a little bit, it's putting a little bit of wilderness back in your heart. It's kind of rewilding your heart as well and not becoming so domesticated as a, <laughs> as a species. That's right. I like that concept. And I like this other sense of balance. It's not like let's rip everything out and rewild 100%, but uh, there's balance there too. Um, but I like this uh, concept of rewilding our hearts. It, it's going to stick with me for the rest of the day, for sure. Um, at this point, I've asked you so many questions about rewilding and the work that you do to help others with this concept of rewilding in their communities. Is there anything else that you might want to share? Any final thoughts or anything that you think is important for us to know, but I didn't get a chance to ask you those particular questions. You know, I, I think, look, uh, the other reason why rewilding was very powerful is for me, especially over the last few years is our politics has gotten toxic, our media, social media has gotten very toxic. People are filled with like, you know, so if you want to pull out of all that toxicity, the best way is to go and spend time in your yard and just, you know, it, it, it does not like, you know, you put a you put a milkweed in your backyard, a butterfly that comes does not care whether you're like a Bernie supporter or a Trump supporter or what you have, or, you know, what you think of COVID. The butterfly is not going to ask any questions. It doesn't judge you. It comes for the, you know, so you're going to find definitely a lot of peace and calm and contentment, at least from my perspective, right? Pulling myself up, it just gives you, I'm not saying politics is not important or don't vote or anything like that. All I'm saying is just make some space in your room and life, uh, in your head for yourself, just communing with nature. And that's a, a, a big stress relief from the politics and the COVID and every, you know, um, uh, the wildfires or whatever it is that is near you that's stressing you out. Yeah, that's actually great advice. I noticed that you fit in key things in your life, rewilding and spending time in nature, 
to not be so stressed out, finding a moment of calmness and taking care of yourself. Because for example, you're walking while interviewing and I'm still fascinated by that as well. But um, it's it's um, interesting to see that you're making sure that you create the space for those things that are needed for long-term health, whether it's emotional, physical, um, or, or mental. So uh, rewilding, coming to that, if anyone's curious, the thumbnail and the images related to this episode are actually a picture that Raju sent me with his wife in his rewilded backyard. And the, it looks beautiful, actually. So some of you might be curious, what does this look like? So you'll, if you look at that picture, you'll see what a rewilded space looks like and how beautiful it could be and how peaceful. Uh, I think I matched the, the scenery now that I think about it. It's, it's very uh, green and yellow. Um, so definitely take a look at that. Um, Roger, thank you so much for joining me for coffee and an interview. I don't know if you have any more final thoughts to share at this point, but you've given us a lot of information. It was very educational and advice uh, for us to move forward and take action in rewilding if we want to do so. Absolutely. And I look forward to the day when I can actually have that domesticated coffee with you. <laughs> I know. I know. We're so, it's hard. I have the coffee before and after the interview because we're virtual <laughs> with the pandemic. Um, but one day we shall have coffee together and maybe pick up a few plants for my own rewilding. Coffee. I would love that. I would love that. Thank you. But thank you so much. And thank you, everyone, for listening to this wonderful episode on rewilding with Raju. I hope you all have a wonderful day and that you check out all the resources, including the link to the nonprofit Rewild Long Island. There are many great resources and access to some of these uh, plans uh, that we discussed that if you're in the Northeast, you'll be able to purchase and use yourself. And thank you once again, Raju, for being part of this wonderful interview. And I hope you have a great day. Thank you.